Now, it is true that the word brother can be used generically, like there's my brother in Christ down there, but it can also be used specifically. And that's how it's used to describe the half-brothers of Jesus, because, of course, Joseph was not his father. The Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are continuing our study in the book of James, and today Dr. Brogy continues his biblical exposition of James in chapter 1. This chapter contains some of the most profound theological truths found in the New Testament. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues to look at the family Jesus grew up with. So why did Jesus choose these men and not some others who are equally qualified or maybe better qualified? Because of God's sovereign will. These men had nothing to do with their choosing. Christ selected them to be apostles to be with him. So let's focus on those with the name James here. Again in verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, staying that is Peter and James and John. Now this James is probably... In fact, he is the best-known James in the New Testament. He's mentioned 21 different times. And since people, of course, in the first century did not have surnames or last names, but were identified by their father, he's referred to as James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, of course, is John. Now, he's the older of the two. In the 17 out of the 18 times these two brothers are listed, James is always listed first. Why? Because he was the older. And so, for instance, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So this one called James is called on the same day that his brother John is. And we learn from Matthew 4, going on from there, he saw two other brothers. So they're on the shore of Galilee. They're at a place called Bethsaida. There are two Bethsaidas in the New Testament, one on one side of the Sea of Galilee, one on the other side. Um, And there's two Bethanies and two Antiochs, and so that shouldn't totally surprise you. So they're on this beach, in fact... We go there every time. It's called Tabga, but it's technically Bethsaida. And it was there that Jesus found these disciples whom he eventually calls as apostles fishing. And by the way, it's there that he will do the first miracle where they'd fished all night and didn't catch anything. And then he sends in his sovereign way all the fish into the nets and the boats were sinking. Remember that? And then after the resurrection, they're waiting. They're not in disobedience. They're waiting for what Jesus told them to wait for. And so they're out fishing and fished all night again. And on that same beach, Jesus has a fish fry and does a miracle. So these are brothers, James and John, part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And this one called James is called on the same day as John, as Matthew 4 indicates. And they're working, and they have a father, again, by the name of Zebedee. And while they're working, earlier that night, all night long, Jesus spent the night in prayer before he chose his apostles. Luke tells us, and when day came, after he'd prayed all night, He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. It's interesting to see the brother teams in the 12, and James and John, their brothers, Philip and Bartholomew. Now, in the parallel account in Mark 3, we learn this. 
And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, as he explains for those who don't know Aramaic. And Andrew and on the list goes. So Jesus made James and John's, uh, he makes them apostles. You know John. We just studied one of the five books he wrote. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see in a moment, this is not the James, who, of course, writes the epistle of James. But they are called Bonerges, which is an Aramaic word that means sons of thunder, In other words, they're they're thunderous men. They're kind of impulsive guys. These are the two brothers who, when the Samaritans don't give Jesus the welcome that they thought he deserved, they say, Lord, can we call fire down from heaven? And these were the two who had a dear Jewish mother who came to Jesus with their sons, requesting that they sit on his right and his left hands in the coming kingdom. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Interestingly, these men, neither this mother or a millennialists, they believed what God said in the Old Testament, that a literal kingdom would come to the earth and Messiah would reign just as he promised. We just finished studying the thousand-year reign of Messiah through our work on the Revelation, and we saw six reasons why God will go to the kingdom. People say, well, why don't you just bring Jesus back and take us right into the eternal state? We went through six reasons why God will establish his kingdom first. That's all in the Revelation series. And by the way, this term, sons of thunder, is an expressive term. It means thunderous men. It's kind of like the term, son of God. It's not a depreciating term like our Mormons who say, well, God is God, but Jesus is the son of God. He's he's a son of God like we're all sons and daughters of God, but not that he's God the son. That's not how the scripture uses the term. These are thunderous men. These are real men. These are like men's men's. And we need some real men in the church today. There are too many effeminate men who are tripping over their skirts when they walk into the pulpit week after week. Too many effeminate men in the ministry. And sadly, very sadly, we have women pastors who are filling a role that God has not called them to. They have another higher role in the body of Christ. And young boys in the church are being feminized. And it's not by accident that when you have women pastors, that very often those boys become more effeminate. And in those churches, they have the highest expression of homosexual behavior. So you've got these two brothers with these impulsive tendencies that are part of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, they are the three who meet Christ in the Mount of the Transfiguration. Only in Capernaum does Christ take these three to witness the raising of Jairus' daughter. And only these three go into the inner realm of the Garden of Gethsemane to watch Jesus pray. By the way, this is the same James that Luke writes about in Acts 12. You might want to circle his name and draw an arrow out into the margin. Let me read to you Acts 12.1. Now, about that time, Herod the king, by the way, there are seven Herods in the New Testament. You need to know each of them to be able to distinguish them. 
About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. This is Herod Antipas, the one that Jesus said, you fox, the one whom Jesus stood before, where he is condemned to be crucified. He is a vile, he's a venomous king. And he has James the apostle, one of the original 12, beheaded. Now, we just read, Jesus turned to the two sons, James and John, and he said, in essence, you don't really know what you're asking for, to sit on my left hand and my right. But the path to the throne for you will be a path of suffering and death. And James becomes the very first apostle to be executed. And his brother, John, of course, dies in exile on the Isle of Patmos, where he gives us the book of Revelation. And in case you're interested, and you should be, this James is the first apostle to die and the only apostle apart from Judas Iscariot, whose death is actually recorded. So because this James is so famous, people immediately say, oh, yeah, that's the James who, who wrote the book of James that we're reading this morning. The fact is, Luke, who's a premier historian, drops all these little chronological clues throughout the book of Acts, and so we can definitively date this James's death at 44 AD, and it's another sermon in itself. We know the book of James was written between 46 and 49 AD, some three years after the James that we just read of has been executed. Now, there's a second James mentioned here in Acts 1 and verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, now listen, James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, the second James is designated here, James, the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus, who, by the way, is also listed in Matthew 10 and verse 3, where there he's called James the less, meaning James the younger. Who's he younger than? His brother. Who's his brother? Matthew. Remember, Jesus met this guy at a tax collector's office in Capernaum. Matthew is called Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. And so this is his younger brother. Matthew is the older of the two. So James, the son of Alphaeus, he's repeatedly mentioned in association with the other apostles. And he's mentioned also in association with his mother. He has a mother named Mary. Now, there's a bunch of Marys in the New Testament. And you've got to sort those out. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is one of the women one of the Marys who was there as Jesus died on the cross. This is one of the Marys who was there with Mary of Magdala in Salome when they go to the tomb early that Sunday morning. James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of really the unknown apostles and that nothing about his particular character is recorded for us in Scripture. None of his specific actions are written for us, except for the fact that he is in obedience to Christ's command, and he is in the upper room praying and waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that nothing to speak of is written of him does not mean that he is unimportant. He was very important for Christ to have chosen him as one of the 12. And he is included in that group that will rule and reign with Christ on thrones, judging Israel during the millennial reign. Listen to these words, Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me and the regeneration, the regeneration is when Messiah comes, rules on the earth. We've studied this in our Revelation series. We looked at a bunch of scripture where the earth is rejuvenated, the lifespan of people is greatly increased, and 
during the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall, shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'll not go into that because we recently studied it. But remember also, when you get to the holy city someday, and some of your loved ones are already there, we read, in the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Some of your loved ones who are in the New Jerusalem, and that becomes just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to create in the future. They're walking around, and now, who's that James? I, I don't know him. Probably because they never read their Bible before, so they had to ask. One of those foundation stones has this James, James, the son of Alphaeus, James the last. Now, there's a third James here in Acts one thirteen. Are you paying attention? Don't drift. This is important. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room. There's Peter, James, and John. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. And notice, and Judas, the son of James. Now, this James mentioned in the New Testament clearly did not write this letter. This is simply the dad of a man by the name of James, one of the twelve. Well, why on earth would God mention his father's name? Because remember, this is a time where there's no last names. And if you had the name Judas, you would be glad that your name was qualified because you would not want to be associated with Judas Iscariot. Now, nothing else is known about this dad named James, except the fact that all agree he obviously did not write the epistle. But there's a fourth James that is mentioned indirectly here, and we'll see this morning he is the one who writes the letter that we're going to study in the months ahead. Look at verse 14. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, you see, his brothers, the nearest antecedent is Jesus. So we're talking about the brothers of the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you may have grown up in a church where you were taught that Mary did not have any other children. The Bible does not teach that. Listen to these words in Matthew 1.25. We are told that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The King James, a little bit more wooden, but it captures it beautifully, and knew her not till or until she brought forth her foresperon son, and he called his name Jesus. He did not know her until, meaning that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relationships after the Lord Jesus was born. In fact, let me read to you from Luke chapter 2. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn, which indicates Joseph and Mary had other children. Jesus is her firstborn. These verses alone, and some others we'll look at in a moment, unravel the Roman Catholic doctrine known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, how do they come to that conclusion? When you will read verses that speak of Jesus' brothers, because they base it on a translation of the Bible known as the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the official translation on which Roman Catholic doctrine is built. Now, in the Greek New Testament, the scripture that God gave us the New Testament in, there are different words for brothers and cousins and relatives. And certainly, 
if uh, this were the brothers were just cousins as they uh, manufacture that doctrine, God the Holy Spirit could have used a perfectly good Greek word for cousins. It's used in Colossians chapter 4 in verse 10, but he doesn't use that word. If he had meant relatives, just some kind of a relative of sort, he had just used the Spirit of God, the term relative, to describe Mary and Elizabeth in their status together as cousins. But he doesn't do that. So that's called the uh, Hieronymian view after a guy by the name of Jerome. When you go to Bethlehem, we can't always get in there, but to me, one of the highlights is to go to Jerome's cave. I mean, it's a class A, this happened here. This man, Jerome, in the fourth century, lived in a cave for 35 years. It's really quite nice. It was a really pretty impressive place he had there. And uh, he learned Hebrew from the Jewish rabbis that lived in that town called Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he produced a beautiful translation of the Bible called the Latin Vulgate. Latin was the language of the scholars. And so for the next thousand years, virtually the only translation of the Bible that the church had was Latin, given to us from Jerome. The problem is, of course, Latin became a dead language, and the only people eventually who could read it were the scholars. And again, it does not have the same degree of specificity that Koine Greek in which God gave us the New Testament in. Now, it is true that the word brother can be used generically, like there's my brother in Christ down there. But it can also be used specifically, and that's how it's used to describe the half-brothers of Jesus because, of course, Joseph was not his father. The Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb. Listen to what Gabriel said to Mary. Isaiah had predicted a virgin will conceive, and Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason... The holy child shall be called the Son of God. So Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Now, if you grew up in the Orthodox Church, they say that, well, Joseph, these children, that Jesus had other brothers because they tend to be much more in tune to Greek than Roman Catholics are. And they say, no, you can't deny these are real brothers. But these are Joseph's sons from a previous marriage. Well, again, that doesn't match Scripture, and that was postulated in the 5th century by a guy by the name of Epiphanius, and so we call it the Epiphanian view. But neither of those views reflect what you read in the biblical account. And so as the centuries went by, Mary was not only viewed as a perpetual virgin, but she was eventually declared to be sinless. And then in the 1850s, the Roman church said that she was bodily assumed into heaven. And so therefore, instead of Christ being exclusively worshipped, you can go through another intercessor named Mary. They won't deny there's one mediator. They'll say there's a mediatrix, and they use the feminine form. It's just beyond belief. And so what ends up happening is Mary is venerated instead of Christ being worshipped. And if Christ wanted to dismiss some of these uh, false, I mean, if he wanted to affirm some of these false doctrines, remember on that occasion, a woman came to Christ out of the crowd and she said, blessed is the womb that bores you and the breast at which you nursed. What a No better opportunity than for Jesus to say, yes, indeed, but he doesn't say that way. That he says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. 
to Jesus, obedience to the word of God was more important than even being such a great woman of God as Mary was to be able to bear the Messiah. Listen, there's only been one person who's ever walked on planet Earth who was sinless, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. Mary in the Magnificat. And at this time of year, very often, I will hear people, they'll say, well, Mary's 12, 13, 14 years old, and she had children. That is such a distortion. It's only been around for about 100 years. And they almost make Joseph like he's some old pervert marrying a child. I've never met a 12 or 13-year-old girl that can draw together so much Scripture and all these books of the Bible that Mary does in what we call the Magnificat, Latin for the Song of Praise. Many of the terms we have, remember, Jerome gave us the Latin Bible. There's five terms and one written right across the front of the pulpit here. All Latin terms that come from the Latin reflection of Scripture. And so God is very clear that there's only one sinless person who's ever lived. And so in the Magnificat, she says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Listen, only people who are sinners need saviors. We don't want to dismiss Mary. She was a magnificent woman. And sometimes as Protestants, because we are fighting against Roman Catholic heresy, we don't give her the place that God gave her, a fantastic woman. But like all of us, she descended from Adam. So the teaching that she was without sin, that she was a perpetual virgin, that she was a mediator, again is dismissed. So please note, in the upper room back here in Acts 1, no one is praying to Mary, but Mary is praying with those present. And among those present are those who are called the brothers of Jesus. And so the Bible teaches what Helvidius affirmed, what we call the Helvidian view, that Mary and Joseph had other children. Listen to this from Matthew 13, 55. The people of Nazareth challenged that Jesus was the Messiah, and they asked, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They were saying, he's just like one of us. We know his brothers and his sisters and his mother and his father, who's only a carpenter. Don't tell us he's the Messiah. When Jesus makes his second visit to Nazareth after his public ministry begins, remember when he makes the first official proclamation there in the synagogue and he reads the prophet Isaiah and he says, yeah, this is all about me. They take him to the Mount of Precipice and they want to throw him over the cliff. Amazingly, a year later, he comes back to Nazareth. Why? Because he loves these people. Who is this guy claiming to be the Messiah? We know his brothers. In fact, they're named here. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And he has sisters, plural, which means there was at least two. So he grew, grew up in a family of at least seven children. Now, we'll see here in a moment. The brother mentioned in this verse, James, was not initially selected to be an apostle because like his other brothers... They were in unbelief. Hold your finger here. Go to John chapter 7. Don't lose your passage in Acts. <laughs> I know you've got enough fingers to pull this off. Go to John chapter 7 for just a moment. John chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 7. Now, as you're turning there, the half-brother in the list named Judas, who's also called Jude, we just read four brothers by name, gave us the book of Jude. In fact, in most countries of the world, they don't call it the book of Jude. They call it the book of Judas. 
But most English translations, we call it the book of Jude. I was in a foreign country once, and I said, well, turn to the book of Jude. And the translation said, well, what's the book of Jude? He had no idea. And it's really technically the book of Judas. But our English Bibles put the book of Jude because we want to distinguish him, of course, from Judas Iscariot. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Well, in either case, Jude was one of the half-brothers of Christ. And so before Judas Iscariot's betrayed, old Jewish, Judas was a very popular name, and so be. There was Judas Maccabeus who led a great revolution in the second century to recapture the temple that had been stolen. And then, of course, uh, Judas is reflective of the word Judah, from which the Messiah would come. Well, in either case, God used two of the half-brothers of Christ, one to give us the book of Jude, the other the letter to James, the letter from James. Now, John 7, look at verse 2. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Now, notice the advice that his brothers give him. By the way, if you go to Israel today, they still celebrate the Feast of Booths. It's usually in the September-October time frame. They're on a lunar calendar, so it's not always the same date. And they literally, the Orthodox people, set up these tents, and they live in these tents for a week in obedience to what God told them to do in the Scripture. So the Feast of Booths was near, one of the important festivals. And his brothers, verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. They're saying, in essence, don't waste your time out here in the countryside. Go into Judea. They knew that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot, as they call it, would draw thousands of faithful pilgrims into the city of Jerusalem. And if Jesus were to go into Judea and he really was whom he claimed to be, whom his mother was telling his brothers that he was then go there and show us. If you're really interested in religious prominence, go to the capital city. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you're really the Messiah, then advance your cause. Go to Jerusalem, and the people will indeed believe it. Now, they're challenging him to produce his works or his miracles. Now, remember, one miracle had been done publicly, which they did not see. A short distance from Nazareth is a little village called Cana, where he turned the water into wine. And of course, on that day, only his mother and the disciples and the servants knew what had taken place. So they want to see some of these miracles that they've been hearing about. Come on, you know, um, the only one that's happened out here in the sticks is the one in Cana. And, and they didn't even really know about it, but they'd heard about it, but they didn't witness it personally. In fact, in light of Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, some would say that, well, these brothers wanted him to go there so that the zealots would end up hating him and uh, that these brothers had this malignant hatred for Jesus and they wanted to see his ministry done and over with. Now, that's not true. Put out in the margin Mark 3, 20 and 21, and let me read it to you. Mark 3, 20 and 21. We are told, and he came home, home here being Capernaum. When you think of the life of Christ, think of four places. Bethlehem, where he was born. Nazareth, where he was raised. Capernaum, that also becomes his hometown, where he spends three years after he's rejected in Nazareth. And, of course, Jerusalem, where he was crucified, raised from the dead, and is coming back again. He came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that day that they could not even eat a meal. 
when his own people heard of this, this is a reference to his family, his, when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The Living Bible says, he's out of his mind. The Philip says, he must be mad. If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 001. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue to look at how Jesus' brothers viewed him. Join us then as we search the scriptures.